Good morning, and welcome to the second week of our new sermon series, The End, where we spend time together going through the book of Revelation. Last week, Pastor Matt started us out by looking at teachings of Jesus recorded in Matthew, where Jesus spent time giving us insight into the different signs that we need to pay attention to that are pointing towards the coming of the end. And this is a great foundation piece for us to start with. And I encourage you, if you have not been able to see that sermon, or if you just want to go back and see it again, please go to our website and find that under our sermons tab so that you can really get that foundation as we now transition into the book of Revelation. And what I want to encourage us with when it comes to this book is this is definitely a revelation of what is to come. And that is what is said right at the beginning of the book. And we're going to look at that here in a minute. So we definitely want to look at the details that are included of events that are going to happen and the warnings that is given to us by Jesus through the book of Revelation. But what I want to encourage us with is this is not just a revelation of what's to come. This is also a revelation of Jesus himself. Jesus shows himself in, in a powerful and important way to us through the book of Revelation. And we're going to start with that this morning as we look at the very first chapter. And John, right off the bat, gives us a vision of the risen, glorified Christ. And, and that's where we're going to start. Um, so as we begin this series now in Revelation, I want us to uh, spend time, yes, focusing on the things that are going to happen. But let us also really focus on the ways that God is going to reveal himself to us through this book. And, and just an encouragement to keep that focus through the entirety of this time. But let's jump into the book of Revelation right off the bat with verse 1 of chapter 1, where John says right off the bat, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So again, we see that this is a revelation of Jesus that Jesus is giving to us. But again, this is also a revelation of Jesus. We are going to learn things about Jesus, who he is, and how he is going to reign and rule in this world and about his kingdom. And, and uh, there's this amazing truth that is presented through this book. But as we begin... It, I want us to take note of, of this really interesting statement of what must soon take place. You know, if I were to read that and, and just think about it, my first thought is that soon must take place is that's going to happen soon, like in a time period. And what's interesting about this is we're reading a, a book, we're reading a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago. So uh, there's this time frame where we can get confused on this. And that's been something that's been debated uh, ever since the beginning of, of the church and especially trying to process Revelation. Pastor Matt referred to it last week also, where we want to find the time. We're always looking for this is the sign that it's going to happen soon. There's been people that have tried to predict it. Uh, there's been people that try to say it's going to happen with this many years because we kind of look at that and says, well, it says it's going to happen soon. What I want to encourage us with as we begin is the way this language is actually working. It's not necessarily talking about a period of time versus the language is actually saying what is going to take place is actually inevitable. It's unavoidable, meaning what you are about to read. Don't get so focused on when, but focus on the fact of it's going to happen no matter what 
These events are inevitable and they are unavoidable. This is why Jesus warned us in Matthew 24. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. We don't need to get so focused on the wind that we lose sight of the fact that we need to be ready and we need to be prepared because what's going to happen is inevitable. And this starts out right off the bat in the beginning of Revelation. Now, this promise that this is going to happen has two purposes as we look at the book of Revelation. It actually fulfills these two purposes. One, it brings assurance to the believer. As a believer in Jesus, uh, someone that has put my faith in Jesus, when I enter into studying the book of Revelation, it actually gives me a great sense of assurance. It reminds me that no matter how out of control the world gets, no matter how dark it gets, uh, no matter what persecution comes, Jesus is still victorious. There's going to come a day where he's going to come back and he's going to make everything right. So it brings assurance to me as the believer and to anyone that puts their faith in Jesus. On the flip side of that, a purpose of revelation is it, it's a warning to unbelievers. As people read the book of Revelation, if they're not receiving assurance to their faith, they're going to be struggling with fear and uneasiness. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to try to dismiss what is talked about in Revelation. And that's why it's so important right from the beginning that we stand on this, this firm foundation that, that John is saying, listen, this revelation is unavoidable. No matter how much you want to try to dismiss it, it is going to happen. No matter how much you want to try to dismiss Jesus, there will come a day that you will stand before him. It is unavoidable that the day will come that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So to the believer, that brings assurance. That's excitement. That's comfort. That's the, I can't wait to be able to stand before Jesus and kneel before him in worship and to proclaim his name. But to the unbeliever, that's a warning saying, if you do not pay attention to this warning that is laid out in this book, there will come a day where you will stand before Jesus and you will kneel before Jesus. And you'll confess before Jesus, but it's too late. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. So Revelation starts out in verse 3 with a blessing. It's a three-part blessing, and I think it's important for us to note this as we go into this. But John records these words saying, Blessed is the one who, one, reads the words of this prophecy. There's a blessing just in reading the book of Revelation. But the blessing goes on from there, and it says, Blessed are those who hear it. It's not just enough to read it, but we need to hear it. We need to pay attention. We need to come to understand it. We need to treat it as truth and powerful in our lives. And the next part of that blessing is not only those who hear it, but those who then take it to heart what is written. So another way of saying this, and some translations say this, is those who hear it and heed what is written in it. Heed being this idea that we pay attention, we respond to it. We actually treat it as the truth that it is, and we make sure that we do everything we have to in order to be ready. So this is the blessing as we go through this series. We want to be people that not only read this prophecy, but we need to be people that hear what it says, and we need to be people that respond to it and take it to heart. This is the blessing and the promise that's given to us right at the beginning. 
John goes on and he, and he starts getting into uh, the introduction uh, of who he is and, and why he's writing. And he says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Just some background information. Uh, John is the final apostle that is alive. Uh, the rest of the apostles have all been martyred. John is now late in his life. He's in his 80s, if not 90s. He's been faithful in his witness to Jesus. And what has happened is John is now a prisoner in exile on the island of Patmos. And this was not a vacation spot by any means. Uh, John actually was on a location that was actually, it was uh, a mining uh, island. There were rock quarries and things like that. So John found himself as an older man put on an island where he was in forced labor. And he's, he's comparing that to us. He's saying, listen, brothers and sisters, I am your companion in suffering. I am suffering right now because I am on the island of Patmos. I am here because of my testimony. And I am here because I've been proclaiming faithfully the word of God. And, and so it's important for us to understand that where John was at. Uh, this moment in his life that God then chose to reveal himself to John in this moment where John says, I was in the Lord's day and I was in the spirit and Jesus appeared to me. And that's where we pick up at the very beginning of revelation is John in exile, worshiping God, and then Jesus revealing himself to John and then showing him this vision. So where we're going to spend our focus this morning is in this passage of Scripture. And I want to encourage you to grab your Bible, open it up, and have it in front of you. We're going to walk through, step by step, the, the description that John gives of when Jesus reveals himself uh, to John. And that's starting at Revelation chapter, 12, or chapter 1, verse 12. And John says as he was there, and he was in the Spirit, he hears this voice, and he turns around. And the first thing that John makes reference of is when he turns around, he sees uh, Jesus and he makes reference to him standing among uh, seven lampstands and he's holding seven stars. And just real quick, let's just address what those are. Uh, it's actually recorded at the end of chapter one. Uh, the seven lampstands actually represent seven churches. And in chapters two and three, which we're going to cover next week, Jesus has a message to all of these churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And what's beautiful about this picture is God is showing us, Jesus is showing us that he is the center of the church. He is in the midst of the church. And this is so comforting, not only then, but to, to, for us today, is that Jesus continues to be the center of the church, the true church. Jesus is, Jesus is at the center of it. And the true church, uh, Jesus is among the church. He is in the church. This is such a beautiful image that he gives to us in this vision. And in addition, there's seven stars that he's holding in his hand. And the seven stars, some translations refer to them as the angels of the churches. Uh, some may say the messengers of the churches. So when it says angels, the language there is not really meaning actual heavenly host of angels, but seven individuals that are representation of those churches. The best way to understand this is the seven stars would be maybe the seven pastors or the seven messengers uh, sent from those churches. So in your mind, kind of picture this, John being in exile, he sent to the churches, these seven churches, uh, he requested that they come to him so that they could receive this message 
that had been given to him from Christ. So uh, it's a beautiful image of the authority of Jesus and the protection of Jesus and how Jesus is holding the leadership of the church in his hand as he's among the church. It's also a beautiful image of the way that this message is being presented, right? So if we take, if we take verse 1, it says that this is the revelation of Jesus that was given to him by God, which was, you know, so you have this, this, uh, this flow of how the revelation is given. The Father gives the revelation to Jesus. Jesus then gives the revelation to John. John records it, and then he gives it to the seven messengers. And then the messengers then take it to the church. And we can trace back the giving of this revelation all the way to God himself. And that's the beauty of this, that we can trust what we're about to study and we're going to look at, is that it comes from God through Jesus to John, to the messengers, to the church, and then it's been passed down all of these years that we still can look at it and learn from it and gain wonderful insight for ourselves. So let's jump into uh, the vision that John has when it relates to Jesus. The first thing he says is when he says that he was among the lampstands, he says it was someone like a son of man. This is a beautiful and important point that John is making. And, and what he's saying here is even in the midst of seeing the glory of Jesus, He's still reminding us of Jesus's humanity, right? Jesus's humility and his compassion, right? This is connected back to Daniel. There's a lot of revelation that is connected back to Daniel. Daniel actually records a lot of end time prophecy also. And in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, when Daniel has a vision, he says, in my vision, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus liked to call himself also the son of man, reminding us and showing us and teaching us about his humanity. The fact that he was willing to step out of the glory of heaven and come down into the middle of this mess in order to redeem and save us. Philippians reminds us of this when it says he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. As we look at the rest of the vision, we're going to see the glorified Christ. But God is starting at the beginning of showing us through, through John his humanity. He's reminding us again, while my glory is terrifying in its fullness, and it should be, when we really think about us and God, his glory should be terrifying to us. But he starts by reminding us, I was willing to set this aside for a time so that I could come redeem you and bring you back into my presence. And that's where John starts with this vision of Jesus is his humanity. He goes on and he says that Jesus is dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. This is telling us of Jesus's position uh, as our high priest and as our king. In Isaiah, it says about Jesus, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. This imagery we're seeing here is, as the uh, original hearers of these letters would be reminded of these teachings in the Old Testament. And, and it's being reminding of them, of, it's reminding them of Jesus's righteousness and his faithfulness. The fact that he holds the position as our high priest because he was willing to step down so that he could fill that gap between us and the Father. This is a beautiful, again, reminder of the position that Jesus holds as our Redeemer and as our Savior. And again, his compassion for us, his mercy for us, and his grace for us. 
In the same way, it connects us also back to Aaron and his sons, the first priest that served God. And if you go back in the Old Testament, we are told about the priestly garments that they were told to wear. And this is a reflection of that, this robe that they would wear and the sash that they would wear uh, on, across their chest and the, gold, and the fact that golden sash, golden being uh, a, a representation of, of kingship, of authority. And again, it's a beautiful picture that Jesus is giving us of himself as our high priest, as the one that stands in the gap for us uh, so that we can be reconnected with the Father and we can have salvation. It goes on and it says that his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. In the Old Testament in Proverbs, we are told that gray hair, uh, the gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old. So uh, there, there's this connection of, of gray hair and eldership to wisdom. And, and here's the beauty of this is Jesus doesn't have gray hair in this vision as if of age. He has white hair. Hair as white as wool and as white as snow, which tells us of Jesus' wisdom. And, and the wisdom that Jesus has is not wisdom that he attained over time. It's not wisdom that he learned over time. No, Jesus doesn't just have wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. If we go back again to Daniel, one of Daniel's visions in chapter 7 of his book uh, at verse 9, he talks about this vision of God and he calls God the Ancient of Days. And he says in that vision that God, that his hair on his head was white like wool. What's important about this as we think of these things is there's the temptation to seek after worldly wisdom. There's the temptation to think that truth and wisdom will come from man and come from around us. The truth is, Real wisdom only comes from Jesus because Jesus is wisdom. This again is so important and foundational as we continue to study through Revelation and even the rest of Scripture because there are moments where our flesh and our, our, our desire to follow worldly wisdom will contradict the wisdom that God is giving to us. Even in Revelation, there will be moments that we want to dismiss what's being said. But we have to stand upon the foundation that Jesus is wisdom, that we can trust him, that we can know that what he tells us is true, that his word is true, and that this is what we build our lives on. It's, again, a beautiful picture of the relationship that we are to have with Jesus and trusting Him and following Him and obeying Him. This is important as we think about faith because real faith brings obedience. Belief on its own is not faith. Faith is belief produced through obedience. And that's where we put the, the wisdom of God in play and we follow what He teaches and what He shows us. The next thing that uh, John says is he looks and he says, and his eyes were like blazing fire. This uh, reference in this image here uh, shows us the omniscience of, of Jesus. The fact that he is all seeing and he is all knowing that his, his eyes are penetrating and that his eyes are consuming. Uh, again, going back to Daniel, we see the same image when he interacted and had this vision of God. He says his face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. What we take away from this when we come to understand who Jesus is as the risen, glorified Lord 
is that nothing is hidden from the piercing eyes of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 tells us, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This is where we start to separate maybe some of that assurance for believers and fear for unbelievers. Because when we really stop to think about this, that means that our entire lives are laid bare before the Son of God. That nothing is hidden from Him. Our deepest, darkest actions and secrets are laid bare before God. He knows us better than ourselves, than we know ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every person according to his ways. Again, to the believer, there is assurance there that says that God knows me better than anyone else and I can seek forgiveness from him. I can seek his mercy and his grace. I know that if I confess to the Lord that even though my deepest sins are laid bare before a holy God, he will give me redemption. He will sanctify me. He will bring me close and draw me near. But to the unbeliever, this is where it starts maybe showing some of that fear. The fear of not wanting to admit certain things in life. The fear of not wanting to actually bring to light some of the darkest recesses of our soul and our hearts and our minds. Because we haven't yet experienced the forgiving grace of Jesus. But Jesus is setting us up for a very important truth when he's showing us through John. He's telling John, he's showing this uh, through this revelation. I see everything. And it leads us to the next part of the vision where he says his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. This is representation of Jesus' Jesus's position as judge. See, I want to take a moment and, and go back to the Old Testament and just show you something that's very interesting. When God gave the instructions on how to build the temple or, and how, the, how to originally build the tabernacle, he told them the, the, uh, the pieces of furniture that they needed to make, the furnishings of the temple. And two of the furnishings was to make the altar for burnt offerings. This is where the sacrifice would happen for the sins of the people. And then the sacrifice would be placed upon the altar. And at that altar, that's where it would be burned and consumed. Another piece of furnishing was a large basin that was made where then they could go and they could wash themselves in water. There was a cleansing there. There was atonement for sin and then there was a cleansing. God was very uh, precise in his instructions and both of those articles were made out of bronze. See, it's important for us to understand that the sin and uncleanliness of man was dealt with at the bronze altar and the bronze sea, meaning that bronze is representation of God's judgment. It is where God judges with sin and wickedness and uncleanliness. This is a beautiful picture because Jesus is saying, not only are my eyes piercing and I see everything, but my feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace, meaning I am preparing to come bring my judgment and to deal with sin and to deal with wickedness. This is connection back to Matthew when Jesus said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Those feet that are like bronze glowing in a furnace. Jesus is setting the tone saying the, the beginning of this revelation is 
I have shown grace and I have shown mercy and I have called people to myself. But when the events of this book begin to unravel, I am coming in judgment. See, a lot of us wrestle with this because we look at Jesus as the suffering servant. We, we tell stories of Jesus, like when he interacted with the adulterous woman. And he said, the person without sin cast the first stone. And it says everybody threw down their stones because none of them were out, was without sin. And we like to use that to say, that's proof right there. Jesus doesn't judge. But that's a false conclusion. Jesus does judge because he's holy and he's righteous. And he tells us that judgment is coming. See, in that moment, Jesus didn't bring judgment because he was there showing grace and mercy. And he was drawing the lost to himself for the purpose of salvation. But when the time comes that all of that is concluded, and the moment comes where Jesus says, enough is enough, and the Father says, it is now time to end this, this is when Jesus will then come as judge. And he will come to eradicate sin and wickedness and to put his enemies under his feet. Again, this is assurance to the believer, but this is fear to the unbeliever. It goes on, and John says that, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. This is showing us the powerfulness of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is all-powerful. Scripture tells us that the Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar against the land. When I think about the voice of God, I think of two different things. I think of Jesus when he was here uh, living his life and just his voice had the power to calm the storm. But then I also think of the beginning of the Bible in Genesis where it says that God spoke and everything came into existence. This right there shows the immense and awesome power of God. And this is important because God is setting us up for an important truth that comes next when it comes to his voice. John says that out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. This is representation of the word of God, which is an instrument of war. See, we have a wonderful promise in Hebrews that says the word of, the, uh, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And it talks about that it can pierce and divide bone and marrow. And we, we take that scripture and we find comfort in that because it shows us the power of God's word in our life and that it's active in our life and that as believers, it is what we use for, for living this life and the power in this life. And we, we stand upon it and we trust it and we live within the word of God. But also in Revelation, it says this in verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. See, here's the thing I want us to understand, especially we'll get to this later in Revelation. There's going to be a moment that we've heard of, many of us have heard of it, it talks about Armageddon. And I, I don't want to go too far into the future of this, but we've heard of this, Armageddon. When I was younger, the idea of Armageddon was the armies of the devil are going to come against the armies of God, and there's going to be this great battle. And there's going to be losses on both sides. And it's going to be horrible. And, and, and of course, we're told that God wins. But it's going to be this massive battle of, of just epic proportions. But when you really read Revelation and you see what it says, yeah, there's going to come a day where the armies of the world are going to come against God. They're going to come against Jesus. And Jesus is going to come with the armies of heaven. But there is no battle. 
what's going to happen is Jesus is going to speak. And through the power of his voice, through the sword, the double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, Jesus is going to destroy all of his enemies. Just the power of Jesus, through his word, his spoken word, is going to destroy his enemies. He's going to say, it is done. It's over. It's finished. No more. This is all coming to an end. Now to the believer, once again, this brings comfort. This should make us excited to say, yes, my Jesus is victorious and he's going to come and reign. But to the unbeliever, this should be a vision of great concern. Because there's a part of you that knows that you are not on the winning side. There's a part of you that knows that you need to get right with Jesus because you would be considered one of those that is his enemy that he's going to strike down. And so this is important for us to understand as we go into this time, as we continue through this. Um, it goes on and, and John says that his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This is a reference to the holiness and glory of God. This goes back to um, the Old Testament where, where Moses came and he asked God, I, I want to see your face. Let me see your face. And, and God said to Moses, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Uh, when we think about the sun shining in all of its brilliance, I mean, think about this when it comes to the glory of Jesus. Um, the sun, when it is shining bright, no human eye can directly look upon it. But we have to shield ourselves. We have to look away because it's too bright. The glory is too bright. And that's just the physical sun. Imagine the glory of Jesus that, that we can't even look upon it in our flesh. And at the same time, the power of the sun, when you think about this, we cannot withstand the power of the sun. If we in our flesh were standing in the full power of our physical sun, it would destroy us. And, and this is what we need to understand about the glory of Jesus. That His glory is so great. His glory is so powerful and so wonderful that we can't even look upon Him because He would shine so brightly. And, and that we can't even withstand the full measure of His glory because if we were standing in the presence of Jesus in, in His full glory, it would destroy us in our flesh. And, and so this is so important with, for us because you've got to think about this with John because it tells us that when John saw Jesus, he fell before Jesus as though dead. And you've got to remember, this is a man that had many experiences with Jesus. He, he knew Jesus as he lived as a man. He followed Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He, he was there with Jesus for three years. He experienced the crucified Lord. He experienced the risen Lord. He, he saw Jesus after the resurrection. But this is the first time that John has seen the risen, glorified, ascended Jesus. This is the Jesus in heaven, in all of his glory, seated at the right hand of the Father. And the only response that is worthy of Jesus is to fall down before him in terror because he's so awesome and he's so great. And it goes on and it says, after John fell, that Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. 
This is some beautiful truth here that as we bring this all together to conclude, I want to encourage you with. The first is this. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, listen, he's saying, I am before all of this, and John, I'm after all of this. I came before the world and sin, and I will be here after all of this is done. He's like, I am the God of history, but I am also the God of the future. What a wonderful truth that no matter how crazy it gets right now, Jesus is like, none of this even comes close to touching me because I was before it and I will be after it. But then he says, I am the living one. What an amazing promise that is. He's saying, not only am I the God of history and the God of the future, I am the living one. I am the God of right now. I am the one true God who was, who is, and is to come. What an amazing truth that we can hold on to and, and just have so much excitement about that he is the first and last and he is the living one. But he goes on, he says, I was dead. What an amazing transition. I am the living one and I was dead. Jesus is reminding us that even though I am the God of the universe, I am the first and the last, I am beyond all this. I loved you enough to come willingly give my life for you. I was dead. I laid down my life for you. Again, it's a reminder that you are going to hear things and see things in this revelation that is going to show you my judgment and it's going to show you how I'm going to destroy sin and wickedness. But I first came to save you. I first came to save you from this and from an eternity without me. He says, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Not only did I willingly lay down my life, I then picked it back up. And because I was willing to put it down, and because I had the power to pick it back up again, I am alive forever and ever. And because of all of that, I hold the keys to death and Hades. I am victorious. Right? So as we look at the rest of the revelation, that's the truth. I am am victorious. That is what Jesus is telling us. I am victorious. As we close, just this last scripture. In Colossians, Paul says this, since then you have been raised with Christ. This is the Jesus that we've been raised with. Set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. As we go through this book, we are going to spend time looking at aspects of our world and things that are happening and, and what will happen here on earth. And it's important for us to consider that because we need to look at the truth of Scripture and the signs. But through all of it, here's the encouragement for us. Let us not get so focused on the things of the earth. Right now, our earth is in a weird, chaotic place. But as believers, let us not get focused on the things of the earth, but instead, let us set our minds on things above. And the things above are Jesus Christ. And the fact that our lives, when we put our trust in Him, we are hidden in the glorified, risen Jesus. The Jesus of this revelation that John records for us. That's our encouragement this morning, that we are hidden in the glorified, risen Jesus Christ. I hope that's comfort to you. I hope that's excitement to you. And if it's not, my prayer is that you truly seek who Jesus is and the offer of salvation that he gives to you. 
If you have questions, reach out to the church. Let us talk to you because there's nothing more important than coming to know Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your mercy and grace, for the revelation that you gave to your son to give to us, your servants. I pray that our eyes be open to all of this, that we come to understand. I pray that we get excited about the revelation of who you are, Jesus, the Jesus that is seated above, victorious, and interceding for us. I, I pray that our faith will become stronger and ignite a passion in us to share you with as many people as we possibly can, all for your glory, all for your purpose. We give you all the praise, and we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Before we go, I just want to encourage you. We're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 next week. Take some time over the next week to read those, uh, kind of process through that. If you have any questions about any of this, send it to the church. Email us. Uh, let us know your questions that you have, and, and that way we know what we can maybe uh, pay attention to during the sermons. But let's prepare ourselves for next week as we continue on with chapters 2 and 3. Have a blessed week.